0: Hi, my name is Pixie, and I'm an alcoholic. Through God's grace, strong sponsorship in the program, and 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had a drink since June 4th, 1995, and for that I am eternally grateful. <laughs> I want to thank the committee and Patty, because every, there's been a lot of talk of, you know, you sent the tape of the speaker, and you listen to it all week, and you know what, you have a feel for them and what they're going to say Nobody has heard me here,
1: <laughs> except
0: for the women that I sponsor that drove up, a couple people from Columbus who are here. So this is a great leap of faith, I think, on their part. <laughs> and what a way to start the morning. Bob was great. Larsine. I wish I could talk that fast or be that funny. <laughs> Kaosha was wonderful, you know. And um, when you're asked to substitute speak for a speaker like Michael Earle, It's like, oh, what an order. I don't think I could go through with this. This whole weekend has been a God experience for me because I was very innocently standing in my kitchen on, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday afternoon and get this call from Michael. We do share the same sponsor, Polypistol, who's up in Birch Bay, Washington. And I come from a line of sponsorship that when I'm asked to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, I say yes. If I can do it, I say yes. And real quickly, I thought of five million reasons why I couldn't do this, and then I said
1: yes.
0: (laughs) And that's the way I've been raised in AA. Um, I'm really nervous. I talk all over Columbus, but this is a huge honor and a privilege for me to be in Dayton. I've seen familiar faces. Patricia, her name was Patricia Prickett. Um, the last time I was at this conference and Patricia Prickett introduced Polly (laughs) Pistol. And I was sitting in the crowd and Polly says, if any of you have a problem with your name, you just come see one of
1: us.
0: (laughs) And what I love about the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is I can drive two hours and be with a bunch of people that I really haven't met before and I still feel at home. I can sit down and I can start talking to you about drinking and not drinking and thinking and not thinking, and I'm with my people, and I'm my very best when I'm with my people. I got this call Saturday morning from Mo, and she says, this is Mo, Maureen. She says, I don't know if you remember me. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember you, and I was her temporary sponsor about a year ago. And then it finally clicked that she was in Dayton. I said, oh, guess what I'm going to (laughs) do. And she says, yes, I know, that's why I'm calling. And then she told you, told me this story that all that she had done not to be here.
1: <laughs>
0: and she said, but I'm going to host you, so I want you to come stay with us. And that was like God doing for me what I can't do for myself because sometimes I still – feel those feelings of fear people and that sense of anxious apartness and aloneness that it talks about in our books. And then she finishes the story, and she tells me that the reason that she's involved in this conference is because her husband is involved in Al-Anon, that he has a sponsor, he's done the steps, and he's active in in Al-Anon in the Dayton area. What's significant about that is while Mo was in treatment, Her husband happened to go over the phone bill once. And there was this phone number that he didn't recognize. And he called it to find out what she was doing, like any good (laughs) 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 recovery galvan. And he called me. And I remember his calling me. And I can tell you, I was sitting in my living room, and I lived in Columbus at that time. I was sitting in my living room at my piano. I had been practicing piano, and um, he wanted to know what he could do to help Mo. And I don't talk about the women I sponsor with their spouses, but I'll talk about them. And to tell you the truth, I can't remember the conversation. So when I drove down here yesterday afternoon, I met Steve for the first time and got to talk with Steve and be there in their home. And he talked about that. He says, do you remember talking to me? I said, yes, I do. And he says, do you remember what you said? I said, no, I don't. (laughs) And he said, you talked a lot about yourself because I'm a double winner. I'm also a grateful recovering member of Al-Anon. And he said, you talked about you and you told me your story and you told me that the best thing that I could do to help my wife was to work my program. And obviously he is. You know, I know who his sponsor is, Judy. You know, it's so good to see her again because I've come down here for conferences and workshops. And that's what got me. Because I might talk to, you know, hundreds of women in a year. And we're just farmers. We're just out there throwing the seeds. But we never, you know, always know when those seeds are going to take root and something's going to happen. You're going to say the right thing at the right time, and somebody's going to hear you, and they just take off, and they do this deal. I didn't know that was going on. And because I didn't know that was going on, I really can't take any credit for it at all. We talk a lot about character defects in in both programs, and some like to say that one of my biggest character defects is I talk a lot. I am talking from the moment I wake up to the moment that I go to bed. And if I'm not talking, everybody in my household kind of ducks because there's an eerie silence in that house. You know, if I'm spiritually fit, I'm talking. I'm talking to my family. I'm talking to the women I sponsor. I'm talking in meetings. I'm behind a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what some people would say are a character defect has been God's gift to me. Bob talked this morning about how important it is to work with others. And because I run my mouth so much at these other women and share my life and my experience with them, sometimes completely by accident, a little tiny piece of truth about me slips out. And you know when you have those moments like, oh, this is the truth about me. I wish, let me take those words back. And because I've been given the gift of gab and Been given the privilege to sponsor a lot of women, I've been able to heal from running my mouth in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm not Chinese, so I didn't get here by a slow boat from China. (laughs) It was a long road, it did seem like. I, too, am adopted. Um, I was born in Seoul, South Korea. Now, you can drink on adoption for a long, long time. That is really good self-pity material. I wasn't adopted into an Asian family. I was adopted into a Caucasian-American family living out in rural southeastern Ohio, so far from a town that I just say the closest town so they know where I'm from. I can drink on that for a long time. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, the first phone call was, you know, he's an alcoholic, she's an alcoholic, they're an alcoholic, and I am a victim. <laughs> and I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's he's an alcoholic, and she's an alcoholic, and they're an alcoholic, and I'm a victim. And uh, the first call I made to Alcoholics Anonymous, I got some woman from Al-Anon, and I'm telling her my victim story. And she starts telling me that maybe I should go to Al-Anon. And I have such respect for these people who answer the phone at the intergroup offices because they're really good at what they did. And once again, my character defect is used to my greater good. And she kept me running my mouth long enough and hearing enough about me until she finally said, well, maybe you should go to an AA meeting. (laughs) So thank God I ended up in the right fellowship. You know, I'm not an alcoholic that I took a drink, I blacked out, I passed out, I loved it, and I wanted to do it again. I am not a blackout drinker. That is not a blessing to remember what you did. It is not a blessing to remember what I said. It is not a blessing to remember how I neglected my children. I'm not an alcoholic that's ever had an OMBI. I have never been in jail. I haven't hit that kind of bottom. I haven't been homeless. I haven't been under a bridge. haven't lost a job. How can I be an alcoholic and compare in with you. I am so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous and our third tradition that it is not quantity of alcohol that qualifies me for this program. It's how I drank. Because I can tell you, many of you drank ten times more than I drank. I was not a morning drinker. You know, I'd hit my house about 5 o'clock. I was the kind of mother that I couldn't get undressed from work without a glass of wine in my hand. And I didn't care if it was warm or cold, white or red. I needed that glass of wine in my hand to get undressed from work. And then I'd go to soccer games, and I'd be very disdainful of the other soccer parents, but you could only get this close to me, you know. Or I'd stand at the other end of the soccer field, so they couldn't get too close to me. Now, in my head, that's because I really don't like them. The truth is, if you got too close to me, you would have smelled the wine on my breast. And I used to drink from 5 to midnight, and then twice on Saturday and Sunday, because that that was the weekend. I'm just, I have no racy stories. I'm thinking, how am I going to talk for Michael? She has such a a colorful drunk and I didn't do that. I'm the kind of alcoholic that on Saturday I would get up and I'd be a little restless and a little irritable and I'd be cleaning house. And I'd be passing back and forth in that kitchen looking at the microwave clock waiting for it to hit 12 noon because that was my rule. I would not let myself drink until 12 noon. And as soon as it was 12 noon, I would open the bottle, I would clean my house, I would do my housework, and by 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I would be taking a nap on the couch in front of the frugal gourmet. (laughs) I did my grocery shopping on Sundays in the town of Lancaster, the Eastside Kroger's, in case anybody wants to go back out and move there. The Eastside Kroger's sells beer and wine after 1.30 in the afternoon on Sundays. So I would hang around the house until Sunday, say 1 o'clock. And then I would load into my car, have my list, and I would go buy my supply of wine for the week. And I would go to the wine department, I would buy all this wine, and I would tell myself, this is going to last me for the week. Um, And it never did, but I would tell myself that every Sunday, this is going to last me for the week. I would was I am a gourmet cook, and I cooked with wine every night. And it's so cunning, baffling, and powerful, because I would be sitting at my desk at work, and I would start thinking about what I was going to cook that night and what kind of wine I needed for that particular recipe. And then there was conveniently a little carryout between my office and my home that I would automatically go into and buy the kind of wine I needed and take it home. And if they didn't have what I needed cold, I would go to the shelf and restock their cooler for them. (laughs) And I would go home, get my wine, get undressed, and cook these huge, elaborate gourmet meals for my family. And um, I would tell myself every night, I'm only going to use as much wine as is needed for this recipe. I am not going to drink this bottle. And every night... I would go by the trash can in the kitchen, and I would see that bottle sticking up there. And I would just take my hand, and i just shove it just a little bit further under that trash so I couldn't see it. I don't know if you've ever cooked for with wine. It does not take a whole bottle. <laughs> it might take a cup, half a cup. It does not take a bottle of wine. And I live like this really the last two years of my drinking. I have a very short drinking career, you know. I don't have 20, 30 years of drinking. I drank really hard for about six years. Um, I can remember, they talk about an invisible line. I can remember the day that I made the decision to drink. I made a decision to do something in my life that I, I was in great conflict over. And... I couldn't do it until I went and got the bottle, took the cork out, poured the glass, chugged it down. And then I had that feeling of, ah, now I can do this deal. Now I can do whatever it takes. And that's the day that I started drinking alcoholically. It was no more pretending, you know. I didn't pretend I wasn't drinking for the pain or for the thinking or for the feeling, I was just drinking. I had conveniently married into a family who drank like I drank. My um, future mother-in-law, the first time I spent New Year's Eve with her, got trashed and was crawling around on my living room floor looking for a missing earring. Being the normal person I am, I'm thinking, yeah, this is the family I wanna belong to, you know? I get mad at my poor ex-husband and I go over and drink with his mother, you know? What's wrong with him? I am a multiple marrier. I have been married more than once and less than five
1: times.
0: (laughs) I have been divorced more than once and less than five times. Since I've been sober for a while, I've learned that that, too, does not qualify me for this program. It's not a necessity, but that's my story. I've always married the disease of alcoholism in one form or another. You know, I believe that if you stuck a 100 men in a room, And there were 99 normal men and one alcoholic. I would sniff him out like a heat-seeking missile, and he would be the one I wanted. I would be in love. That's just my walk. Thank God I'm in recovery. (laughs) Um, The first man that I married, he did not drink. He had a little anger problem. It was a short marriage. Um, I came out of it with my daughter, and I just didn't understand why I didn't drink. I didn't drink often then, so it was not a big deal. But he wouldn't drink at all. And then one day I saw him take a drink. It was like, oh, God, this is why you don't drink. And I had a a low tolerance for that kind of behavior. He couldn't keep a job because he couldn't get along with anybody long enough to stay employed longer than six weeks. (coughs) And so I said, see ya, pal. And uh then I married another man that we went out, and he'd tell me about getting drunk and driving up to Cleveland and sleeping in somebody's um bathtub. And I thought, well, that's okay, you know. <laughs> Get married, and I have two more children. And I want you to know that husbands and children can fix me for a very long period of time. But they never fix me permanently. And I remember in that marriage – Waking up in the middle of the night, I so relate to, to any Al-Anon story. Waking up in the middle of the night, I'm not drinking alcoholically, but finding myself in the living room, staring off into the distance with this hole in my gut, knowing there is something terribly wrong, and I don't know what it is. You know, I don't know if he's an alcoholic. I can tell you that when my third child was born that he was drunk passed out in the attic and didn't quite make it to the hospital for the birth he wasn't an everyday drinker he'd do it like once or twice a month but i had all those feelings of soul sickness that come when you're living with the disease of alcoholism and you don't even know you have it from that Perspective. I know what it's like to pace the floor waiting for an alcoholic to come home. He's supposed to be home at 9. 10 o'clock hits, the, the dinner's in the oven. 11 o'clock hits, and I'm all nerves. 12 o'clock hits, and every sound in the street makes my heart jump because I just know it's the highway patrol to come tell me he was dead. I know what that feels like. But I couldn't draw that memory into my mind when I took that drink that was the drink for me. I didn't remember it when my next husband was waiting for me to come home, and I didn't come home. I didn't remember that feeling when I would walk in the door full of rage because I'd been out in the bar. He never knew what he was going to get. I'm a violent alcoholic. I take a drink. And I will fight you physically. Mostly I fought him. Bob talked about I'll think at you. I drank at him. I drank at him for six years. And I would drink and just try not to feel those feelings. But I would drink until I would just explode with rage. And I would attack him in every way that you can attack a man. And we would go at it. I would break down the bathroom door one night. And I would turn around the next morning and I'd fix it. I know how to fix doors. I know how to fix holes in walls. You know, this is the kind of skills you learn when you live, you live with an alcoholic. <laughs> Whether I'm the alcoholic or somebody else is the alcoholic. I know how to clean up the mess. You know, I know how to do that. The last two years of my drinking, I happened to work in the same town that I lived in, and that was unusual for me, and I started drinking every day, every day, twice on weekends. Holidays were bad because I'd have 20, 30 drunks come over to my house, and I'd cook them this huge, elaborate dinner, and I was just so full of resentment. The last Christmas that I was drinking by 8 o'clock that night, everybody else had been fed. Everybody else was upstairs in my home having a good time. And I am lying in the basement with a glass of wine, stone-cold sober, hating everybody and wondering when Christmas was going to begin for me. You know, I relate to when speakers talk about when it stops working for me. And it stopped working for me. I would drink and drink and drink, and I couldn't get drunk. And it's like my lover has betrayed me, that sense of betrayal. You know, what's happened? This isn't working for me anymore. And there were other times I'd drink half a glass of wine and be trashed. And I was in five years of therapy before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I have many diagnoses. (laughs) I've been diagnosed with anxiety disorder with depression. I've been um diagnosed uh with chronic depression. And my favorite diagnosis was by my last ex husband who said, You are nothing but a sick psycho.
1: <laughs>
0: I was taught not to cuss behind the podium so I won't finish <laughs> So I'm going to these therapists, and I'd just edge on alcohol, and they'd say, well, why don't you quit drinking? And I'd say, okay, and I'd change therapists. (laughs) That's the way I did sponsorship when I first got sober. Um, And I didn't know what an alcoholic looked like, you know. I'm just like the rest of you. I thought I was the guy under the bridge. I do not have a beard. I'm a small, petite Asian woman. I do not look like an alcoholic. I'm in this upper-middle-class yuppie household. We have two cars. We've got three kids. For God's sakes, I'm a soccer bomb. You know, I'm married to this up-and-coming young attorney, which had consequences all its own. And, um, you know, (laughs) what does an alcoholic look like? And I'm running to these therapists, and I'm running to these psychiatrists, and I'm running to my doctor, and they can't help me. They can't help me because they're not alcoholic. They can't tell me what it feels like and what it looks like. My family couldn't help me. You know, and I'm not sitting in jail. I am just dying on the inside one day at a time, dying on my couch, behind the bedroom door. The last two years of my drinking, every night I go to bed and I say, God, please let me wake up dead. Now I know that's an oxymoron. <laughs> and I would think about killing myself. And, you know, my keen alcoholic mind, I lived in this rental house, and it was it had this god-awful pink flowery wallpaper, bright blood-red carpeting. And my whole family would be in the basement playing Nintendo, and they would be laughing, and they would having fun. And I would be up in the bare in the bedroom, barricaded, because I would pull furniture in front of the door so they wouldn't get me. I would be barricaded in the bedroom, drinking this wine, feeling sorry for myself. Oh, nobody loves me. Nobody cares. They're all down there having fun, and I'm sitting up here, you know, making a blanket out of my self-pity. And I'd be sitting up there drinking and feeling sorry for myself in this blood-red carpet, and I had a little knife. I'm just wanting to die. All, I didn't have any razors, but I had this real sharp knife that was as sharp as the razor. I remember sitting up there thinking, I'm just going to slit my wrist, and it's going to be okay, you know, because this carpet's red, and the blood's red, and it's not going to be too much of a, a problem for them to clean up. And I had on this pair of sweatpants, I have them to this day, and I took that knife, and I tested it on that material, and it slid through it just like butter, you
1: know.
0: But I, too, am a coward. I know I'm in the right place. You know, obviously, I didn't kill myself. My last drunk and my last drink, you know, it's all about the first step with me. Um, I got drunk, and I did some things that I wouldn't normally do. And I came home that morning at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I screamed at my children, and I sent them to school. And... I called work, called off work, and I laid down, and I passed out on the couch. And when I came to that afternoon, about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I could see myself. I puked on myself. I had a towel nearby. I'd been in my car. I'd have my camera with me. And I puked on myself. and been sick that night, and I hadn't cleaned up. And I woke up and I had that crusty stuff all around the corners of your mouth and your tongue swollen, you know. I looked bad, felt bad, smelled bad, and I could see myself. And I thought, my God, if anybody could see me now, they could come and take these children. Children's services could get my kids from me because I am an unfit mother. If they only knew what I was doing. And I thought, I have got to stop drinking. And my next thought was, I can't stop drinking. I had tried to stop drinking, and I could not quit drinking. I needed help. And I know today that that was my first step. And I go to a lot of book meetings and a lot of uh, discussion meetings, and I sit there, and we headbang the first step. Well, you just got to do this, this, and this. And this is what the first step. And we philosophize the first step step and I'm telling you if I could give it to another suffering alcoholic I would if I could show you how to surrender I would but it's a soul activity that I can only share my story with you and hope that you find your own and that was my first step I work with a lot of women today and I work with women that have relapsed and they tell me I'm going to do it this time for my mother who's got cancer I'm just going to try harder I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I know in my heart they don't have it Surrender was for me was there's nothing I can do. No matter what I do, I'm gonna drink. I tried more exercise, I tried marriage, I tried divorce, I tried marriage again and divorce again. Switched jobs, bought a new dress. No matter what I do, I'm gonna drink. My last drink was no big deal. It was a water glass of white Zinfandel. I don't even like White Zinfandel. It just happened to be all they had. I didn't know it was my last drink. You know, I got here, and I was a little resentful about that. I thought, well, at least I should have drank something I liked and more of it. <laughs> and I toddle into my very first AA meeting. I arrive late like newcomers do. <laughs> and I've got my upper-middle-class yuppie attorney's wife camouflage on. I arrive in my dark green Plymouth Mommy minivan. I've got on my little white yuppie shorts and my little sleeveless blouse. And I look, you know, I'm disguised. And I slip into this discussion meeting late, and they're talking about stuff I don't know anything about. The big book, serenity, acceptance, one day at a time. I don't have a clue what they're talking about. But they did, after the meeting, what I think that groups of Alcoholics Anonymous are supposed to do. After that meeting, I'm obviously new, and they all came around me like this. And I am corralled and surrounded by a bunch of recovering alcoholics. And I immediately start crying, and I start crying, oh, he's an alcoholic, and she's an alcoholic, and they're an alcoholic, and I'm a victim, and, you know, I'm running my mouth and running my mouth. And finally I said, you know, I think I'm an alcoholic, too. And they gave me a newcomer's packet, and they patted me on the head, and they said, keep coming back. And after the meeting, everybody left, and this old-timer followed me into the parking lot um, and started talking to me, and he started talking to me about some things I didn't understand, something about sex and drinking, and then he did something really good. And I know today that God wastes nothing, absolutely nothing. He gave me the phone number of a woman, and he said, call this woman. She'll help you. She got sober in this town, and she has been through what you're going to go through. Because what happened for me in early recovery was I was married to a young, upcoming attorney in this small community. When I got sober, it, there was no anonymity in my office. They knew I wasn't drinking, because that's who I drank with. I went through a very public separation. I'm newly sober. I didn't go through detox. I didn't go through treatment. And I am shaking it out at my desk one day at a time. And I can remember to this day that feeling. It felt like every single nerve in my body was screaming, And my head is racing, 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 racing about things that were so painful for me I just didn't think I could bear it. And I would sit at my desk and I would be typing, 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 typing. And they thought I was working. I wasn't working. You had taught me to pray and ask God for help. And what I was typing was Please God help me make it through one more minute. Please God help me make it through one more minute. And I would type it over and over and over again till I could just breathe just for a minute and do five minutes of work. And the screaming would start again in my body and my head would go again. And I'd have to do it all over again. And I went to meetings and I went to meeting after meeting after meeting. And I found, like I said, I work with a lot of women, and I don't understand when they're too busy in early recovery to go to a meeting. Because I would sit at my desk, and it would be 2 o'clock, and I would look at that clock, and I would think, I can make it till 7 o'clock. I can make it till 7 o'clock because I was told to go early and stay late. I didn't have a sponsor. I was just eavesdropping on all your conversations. So it is important how we act in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wouldn't get real close to you, but, I, you know, just close enough to hear. <laughs> and uh, I would go early, and I'd look at the clock and think, I can make it till 7 o'clock. I cannot make it to 7.05, but I can make it to 7 o'clock. And I would go to a meeting. And I would go to a meeting because that was the only place that I would feel okay for about an hour. When I first got there, I couldn't focus. My head was going, and, you know, I wasn't hearing everything the speaker was saying, and finally I talked to somebody about that, and they said, well, why don't you just pray and ask God to help you focus? And I did, and I would pray and ask God to just help me be there in that meeting. Help me be present. Help me listen to the speaker. And that started my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um More things happened to me in sobriety than ever happened to me when I was out there drinking. I got poor very, very quickly. Um, I went from an upper middle class Jeffy attorney salary to poverty, single mom of three children type thing. This man was not the father of my children. He was their stepfather. Um, I got poor, had to move. You know, work was difficult because I couldn't focus at work. I was not a good employee the first couple years that I was sober. I was not a good mother the first couple years that I was sober. I was changing. I was sober. But I was not there because I went to meeting after meeting after meeting. And I started going to meetings, and I started to hear things in the meetings, and I started to get this feeling like there's this, Something soft over here you talk about, like just your feelings and some kind of patty cake thing. And then there was this A over here that seemed a little hardcore, you know, like get to a meeting, call your sponsor, keep it simple. And I got this real sense of where I was in my life that if I didn't have that hardcore foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I wasn't going to make it that I had been to enough therapy that I don't didn't need that kind of soft-handedness stuff. I needed somebody who loved me enough to tell me the truth. And that's, I made a phone call. I wanted to drink, and I'm about six months sober. I made a phone call to this guy, this old-timer in our area. He did not call me back right away. He called me back two later days later when I am lying on my bed and I want to drink so bad. Um, and he calls me back. In God's perfect time. And I told him what was going on with me. And this is the power of this program. He made a phone call to Atlanta, Georgia, to a young woman he knew down there, who made a phone call back to Clintonville, Ohio. And these women 12-stepped me. And I started going to Clintonville, Ohio, and asked this woman to sponsor me. Her name was Bonnie Kay. She's about 4'11", 85 pounds, and she was a Nazi. I mean, she was, this woman is this big, and I'm just, like, scared to death of her. And anything she told me to do, I would do because I was scared of her, you know. And she gave me the basics, like go to a meeting, make coffee, you know, get active, give a woman your phone number. She'd send me on these hunts for these phrases in the big book she give me assignments, go read this page, and call me a week later, and i call me a week later, and she say, what did it say? And i tell her what it said, and then she'd say, no, 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 this is what it says. And I remember calling her and saying, you know, Bonnie, I've been thinking. <laughs> you know when your sponsees say, I've been thinking, and you think, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> I said, I've been thinking. I haven't had any fun lately. <laughs> and she says, You don't even know what fun is. You get your ass up to this meeting right now. I didn't tell her what I was thinking, but I was missing my friends down at the bar. (laughs) I was lonely. I told you I changed sponsors like I changed therapists. So, you know, money, men, and mansions. I heard Polly say that one time at a conference, and I thought, that's the sponsor for me. (laughs) Boys and booze. That's my problem. So I'm in AA for a while, and I'm about six months sober. They say don't get into a relationship, right? And I, Bonnie's my sponsor, and I say to her one day, "You know, Bonnie, there's this guy that I kind of like." And she says, "You just don't be, you don't need that in your life right now." So I change sponsors
1: <laughs>
0: to the softer, easier way. I can always find one if I look hard enough. And I embarked on an early sobriety relationship with a guy I'd never seen before. He came in from Florida, took a 13-year coin. He could never string together 90 days. It was the most violent, abusive relationship I have ever been in. It lasted for, I don't know, about a year. When I came out of that relationship, I finally made the commitment that maybe I'll stay alone for a while and work on me. And um, it's very hard for me, it was very hard for me to do, you know, because there there are pretty boys everywhere. And um, I'd have to say no to myself, like, no, you can't have him. No, you can't go there. No, you can't do this. And one of my sponsees that's here right now, she saw me do that one time, and I was just, sobbing because there was such conflict in between between my self centeredness and to do the thing that I knew that was gonna be the best thing for me to do. And she had no idea what was going on. All she thought was like her sponsors having a nervous breakdown, you know. (laughs) But I made it through it and I made that commitment to stay alone for a year. And that at the end of that relationship we talk a lot about depression. I've heard that word thrown around. That was I came to you on medication. I came to you, I'd been in a psych ward a few months earlier, I was on the wrong floor. They actually had a recovery floor. Um, But I came to you on medication and just the meetings and the fellowship that began to work and I began to forget to take my medication. It wasn't a planned thing. I just started forgetting to take it and I felt better. After the ending of this early relationship, I hit it again. I was going to meetings, and I was doing everything you were telling me to do, but my feelings were not changing, and I was a prisoner of my feelings. And I would go to the meeting, and I would go home and lay on my bed and smoke cigarettes and stare at the ceiling, wrapped in my self-pity, which is sometimes very comfortable for me, and search for God's will. And did this for a couple months until I began seeing myself again and thought, if I don't pull out of this pretty soon... I'm going to have to go back on medication. And one day I went to a Sunday morning breakfast meeting and I end up back in that bed, laying on the bed, wrapped in my blanket of self-pity, staring at the ceiling, searching for God's will. And this little voice came through and it said, Picks, whatever God's will for is, you know it's not to be lying in this bed feeling sorry for yourself. Get up and do the dishes. And that's how I learned to cope with those feelings of despair, hopelessness, and depression. I learned to get up and do the dishes with tears running down my face. Get up, go take the shower, fold the laundry. Get up, do something. Aren't those simple actions? you know, Simple actions. How can that be a spiritual action that saves me from the pit of depression that's alcoholism? But it was. I went to meetings, and they say, do the next right thing. I can get paralyzed on the word right for a very long time. My head can, like, take that word, what's right? Is this right? Well, if I do that, this might happen. Is that right? Well, and then finally I'm sitting in a meeting, and I heard the and a woman share that she felt the exact same way. So I had to drop the word right from my vocabulary and just change it, simplify it, down to do the next thing. What is the next thing I need to do? Do I need to do my um, laundry? Do I need to do my dishes? Do I need to go to the grocery store? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Not. Do I need to have a huge spiritual experience? Just let me keep it simple. Get in the car, put the key in the ignition, get to the meeting. Let me do the next thing in front of me. My early sobriety was not easy. I got very, very poor. I have these three kids. Later, they told me that, you know, I love it. The old-timers came up to me, and I'm like four or five years sober, and they shake their head, and they said, Oh, you were so sick. We didn't think you were going to make it. (laughs) I cried in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for two years straight, just sobbed and sobbed. A friend of mine came up to me later, and he said, We never thought you'd stop crying. We thought you were a poster child for Prozac. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: I went to meetings. Later on in sobriety, you know, life just happens. And I don't know about you, but I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and within about six months to a year, I'm a meeting critic. There's good meetings and there's bad meetings. And I'm an old-timer critic. This is a good program, he works a good program, she doesn't work a good program, you know. And I'm a victim again. <laughs> and I can still, I can still do that today. What I found is just because I'm sober and I do the deal, I go to meetings, I pray, I read, I call my sponsor, I work with others, doesn't mean that I'm exempt from the events of life and a lot has happened in my life since I've been sober my third year was really hard I had to file bankruptcy my pride was killing me now all the time my pride is killing me God has given me this huge gift because I had changed jobs and I just happened to work for a bankruptcy attorney and I worked for that attorney exactly for one year we hated each other and I learned all that I needed to do about bankruptcy to do my own bankruptcy work. And the minute that bankruptcy was filed, I was offered another job in that law firm. Is that God? Or purely coincidence? Kind of like Mo sitting there.
1: Well, it's just a coincidence.
0: <laughs> I had to file bankruptcy. Um I'm trying to raise these two teenage boys. My daughter's out on her own already. And this one spring, my mother's in the nursing home, and the nursing home's calling me in the middle of the night because my mother's starting to fall. I've got one son that's acting out all the time. He will not go to school. He would stand in my kitchen and scream at me up one side, down the other, and cuss me out. And he would cuss me out because he hated living with me. I was abnormal. I didn't date. And because he liked me better when I was drunk. And by this time, I'm I'm in Al-Anon, thank God. And um, I know that I can't talk to him. Talking to a raging adolescent is like talking to a raging alcoholic. And I would just stand there and let him get done, you know. And that was going on in my life. I have my ex-husband, the attorney, the stepfather having me in court. I was in court for the first five years of my sobriety with this man over my children, over my children. So they're calling me about my mother. My um, middle son's acting out. My youngest son is gravitating towards this um, stepfather, and my life is unmanageable, and I'm three years sober. It continued into the fifth year. We talk about humility. I didn't know what humility was because I call and I talk about all this stuff and talk about all this stuff and poor me and this is happening and that's happening. And I finally understood what humility was because I took a look at it. And everything that was happening in my life at three, four, and five years of sobriety were long-term consequences of my drinking, my alcoholism. And when I started owning that, I understood what the meaning of humility was for me. It doesn't mean that I stopped whining about it. You know, sometimes it's just a way of life. It's just that I started taking a look at my part in the bankruptcy, in the relationship with my children, in the relationship with my ex-husband. In the year 2000, um, I end up giving up custody of these two sons one by one. I hear people say I've done the steps, like they're done. How did you do that? <laughs> That's not the way it's worked for me, because I've had to do the st- steps and surrender to everything in my life. We talk about the third step: turn. I give you my will of my life. Well, I did that for alcohol, and it was later through my recovery. I had to be on my bedside on my knees and say, God, I give you my will for my children's lives. And I had to turn those kids over one by one by one. God, I give you my will for my money. I thought it was my money, my job. I was wrong. It was not. It was God's. God, I give you my will for my mother, and I'm praying about all this and praying all about all this. But I have an idea about what God's going to do for me. My mother is going to stabilize, and she's going to be fine. My middle son's going to shape up and do what I want him to do. My younger son's going to shape up and do what I want him to do. And that's not what happened. <laughs> what ended up happening was they called me at work one day about my mother, and I was scheduled to go speak at a meeting down there close to where she was in the nursing home, and they said, we've called in hospice. Well, I'd never had any dealings with hospice before. And I said, okay. And they called me a couple of days later, and they said, they, you know how um, gentle the medical community likes to be when they're giving you bad news and they don't actually like to tell you anything? And I've worked in the legal field, and I get very hard and cold when I'm scared. And I said, look, do I need to come now or not? And they said, you need to come now. And I left my job, and I went to the nursing home, and I saw my mother. Well, my mother's actually my adopted mother, and she was old enough to be my grandmother, and she used religion like a drug. And I've been baptized many, many times. Um, Episcopal, Presbyterian, I was baptized in a church on Main Street, Southern Baptist in Lancaster. I've been United Methodist. I've been baptized in a crick once down in southern Ohio, none of it took, <laughs> I still came up alcoholic, I can remember being little, and my mother took me to a tent meeting, with one of those preachers, you know, that are just bellering about God, just bellering, and it's a healing meeting, you know, and I just want to belong, so I'm there with my mother, and everybody goes down front, And everybody's got their arms up, and they're waving them back and forth, and they're chanting, and they're singing. And my mother's got me down here, and I'm about nine years old. And this preacher comes along, and he touches my mother's hand. And, I mean, she passes out cold and hits that floor next to me, and I'm looking at her. And he touches my hand. And you want to talk about the fear of God. (laughs) I hated my mother for that. I hated her for the way she used religion to manipulate me. You know, I hated her for a lot of things because I joined the Blame Your Family of Origin Society for a while. (laughs) It felt good for a couple minutes, a couple years, but then sooner or later it didn't fix me. And I had to come to AA and you told me to take the word blame out of my vocabulary, that you told me to do an inventory. So this is the mother that I went to in the nursing home. And by then, you taught me how to make amends. Now, I don't always know what the damage I've done to another person is. But when my teenage children began acting out and not coming home and escaping out the bedroom window, I knew immediately what the damage was that I had done to my mother because I did that to her. And I would get in my car and I would drive to the nursing home and she had not called me by name for years. But I would drive to the nursing home and I would make amends to my mother for the heartache and the worry that she went through when I was a teenager. And I would make amends to my mother by going on Mother's Day. And whether she knew me or not, or made sense to me or not, I would sit there and I would treat her with the dignity and respect that she deserved as my mother. I would just tell her about my life. I would tell her about my children. And the last Mother's Day that she was alive, she always knew she knew me. She just wasn't quite sure where. The last Mother's Day she was alive, I go out there and I'm making these amends to my mother. And she's listening, you know, and I'm crying a little bit. Because I can feel it. I can feel the healing. And she looks at me and she says, oh, honey, you are the best cake I've ever baked. (laughs) (laughs) So hospice calls me and I go out to my mother and this God that I had grown up so afraid of, you know, and this woman that I just hated and resented. And by this time, a lot of that is healed, thanks to the ninth step. And I go out there, and she was scared because she couldn't breathe. And I crawled on the bed with her. And she would calm down. When I would sing to her, and I got on the bed with her, and I put my arms around her, and the only songs I could remember were Jesus Loves Me and Amazing Grace. And the next morning, you know, I needed to get to my son with something, maybe just hang around this nursing home and hang around just, I don't know, just straighten the cover, straighten a book, just kill time so I didn't leave yet. And I got to be there when she died. And when she died, I was clean. I was free. Because you taught me how. That's why I go anywhere and do anything. That's what you gave me. I've fallen in and out of love many times in AA. (laughs) I'm sitting in a meeting one day, and I'm sitting right here in the front in Columbus, and this guy starts talking, and he's from out of the country. He had an English accent, and he's funny, witty, that dry sense of English English sense of humor, and just fell in love with him. Thought, oh, my God, I'm falling in love with this guy. And then I thought, God, could I have him by for Christmas?
1: <laughs> um,
0: I do, man. He was mine by Labor Day.
1: <laughs>
0: and uh we started on this, you know, AA relationship. You've seen them go to meetings, we go to meetings, he goes to meetings, he sponsors, I sponsor, we go to conferences, we came down here, we went to Las Vegas and we saw Bob. And that year he um, started, we decided, well, we've been together for a couple years now, we'll just go ahead and get married, you know, we'll just live together and go get married. And we went to the powwow out in Palm, Palm Desert. It's like 105 and he's out there golfing and he couldn't keep any food down. He would play golf for a little bit, and then he'd go over in the bushes, and he'd vomit. And he was sick the whole time we were there. we get home, and he is still sick. Now, being the good Al-Anon that I am, I did not nag him enough to get him to the doctor. And I would call my sponsor, Polly, and I would call my Al-Anon sponsor, and they would say, I would be riding his butt, (laughs) get him to the doctor. And he wouldn't go to the doctor. And I remember the one morning I looked at him, and I said, do what you want. I'm going to work. And I went to work um, because by that time he was up every night sick. So I go to work and he calls me in the middle of the afternoon and I could tell by the sound of his voice that he was crushed. And what he'd done, he said he'd made a deal with himself that morning and it was, if I can't keep down this banana, I'm going to call a doctor. And he called a doctor and said, no problem, you probably got have gallbladder. And they, you know, were doing what they do when you go in with an illness like that. It's probably ulcers. It's probably gallbladder. It's probably this. And something didn't feel right, and I started feeling very anxious and very frantic and started getting into action, as God would have it. There was a woman in my office whose husband um, had had cancer, and she put me in touch with a specialist that you're not supposed to go to unless you're referred to the doctor. I called the specialist. The nurse heard the fear in my voice. They got him in right away. Just gallbladder, right? That's all it is. And they did a scope on him and they found out that he had stomach cancer. And they told us there was no cure for stomach cancer. I thought, oh, this will be okay. He's young. He's forty three years old. He's gonna be fine. And they said, No, when you get it when you're younger, it's worse than when you're older. There is no cure. We're gonna do this operation, give him chemo, try to give him five years. Now I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a sick codependent when I'm not drinking, and you do not tell me there is no cure. I will not believe you. And I will go about every way I know how to prove you wrong. And I got started reading and started researching to find a cure for this disease. Uh, the women I sponsored, they didn't want to bother me and say, "We don't want to bother you now because you've got all this on your plate." You ever hear that expression? You've got. I've got a lot on my plate. You know. And I looked at them and said, "No, you call me. I need you more now than I have ever needed you before." And his sponsees and my sponsees kept calling us, and I kept having a step study in our home, and we started down the journey of cancer. If I have an issue with the big book, it would be that thing, that little thing in there about cancer, how it doesn't affect the lives the way alcohol does, and I want you to know it affected my life the way alcohol did. I got just as sick and codependent as I could be. I did everything for that man that I could do to make him well. I looked for a cure. My head is full of useless alternative medicine stuff, Useless for a person who doesn't want it. I changed my diet. I changed my life. I offered it to him, and he didn't want it. He didn't want it. I got healthier and healthier, and he got sicker and sicker. And he looked at me and say, you're getting healthier and healthier. And I said, I don't eat what I used to eat, you know. Learned about prayer and meditation. You know, I just really believed that if I just did the right thing and said the right thing or cooked the right thing, that I could love him into wellness. Just the way I've loved so many alcoholics. I could just love him into wellness. And I made myself crazy. I would cook this and cook that and read this and read that and do this and do that. And I had a spiritual guide that's not in the program. And she got in my face one day and she says, you just don't get it, do you? And I said, get what? She says, you just don't get it. This is not about his healing. He doesn't want it. This is about yours. And that day I let him go. Thank you, God. I had an Al-Anon cancer sponsor, and I had a cancer sponsor. I had to do the steps on this man over and over again. I had to rely on that 11th step. I would go out on our deck, and I would pace under a full moon, smoking and pacing and praying. And I'd look at that, up at that big old moon, and I'd cry out, God, where are you? And always, very quietly, the answer came back to me, I'm here. I grew up believing that when my daddy died, he died because I was out in the hay hay mound in the barn sinning with my boyfriend. So I had some issues there. God was killing off the people that I loved, and if I ever loved anything, that God would take it. And because of Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps and the things that I learned in the spiritual world that opened up to me because of this experience of cancer, by the time Philip died, I knew it had nothing to do with me. It wasn't even about me. And I knew that God loved me absolutely because of that experience with that man i changed and grew spiritually in a way that would not have happened to me otherwise. I had wanted to love him into wellness. I had wanted to heal him through food and love. And in the end, it was me who was healed. And I went to meeting after meeting after meeting. I did not stop going to meetings. I did not stay overnight in the hospital. You taught me to take very good care of myself. I lost a ton of weight even though I was taking care of myself. By the time he died, we didn't have a funeral because neither of us were affiliated with a religion. We had a meeting. Now, this is a program of anonymity. His employers are there. My employers are there. They don't know that we're recovering alcoholics. But we had a meeting of recovery anyway. We just never said the word alcohol. I had three of these guys get up and share I got up and shared. We read the promises. We did the serenity prayer and we did the Lord's Prayer. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I I made a promise to his family that I would fly his ashes home to New Zealand and I did that. Now, I didn't want to do that because this is sometime later. Because of the steps, if you're grieving anything, you can move through that if you want to. And I had moved through the grief, and his family didn't have that. And they're still in the middle of their grief. And I'm talking to Paul, and I said, Paul, I just don't want to do this. I just don't want to do this. And I finally got out of myself out of the way. I'm pacing and praying, because what AA did for me is it gave me a God I could talk to one-on-one. I don't need a translator anymore to get to him. And I'm pacing and praying, and it finally came through to me that this was going to be my last action of love for this man. I need to forget about myself for a while and go be of service to his family and see what I could do to him. So I packed up the ashes and flew them across the um, ocean to New Zealand. Went through another funeral, a real funeral this time, and I stayed with his parents. I didn't get to a meeting for about a week, and I was going Crazy. Um, because of where I was, because of what was going on, and because my sponsor is who she is, she says, "Oh, I know this woman named Liz. She lives in New Zealand. Call Liz. Maybe you can go stay with her." I call Liz. Liz calls me. She says, "Yeah, come stay a couple days with us." I just, you know, I needed to be with my people. I needed to go to a meeting. I'm not good without meetings. She comes. I get it. Take this 30-minute ferry ride. Across this bay, I land on this island, and Liz picks me up, and I immediately am home because she starts talking to me the language of the heart. And she took me to a meeting, and she took me into their home, and I walked in, and it was like being in Hawaii in a private home. It was the most amazing thing. And I went to a meeting in Auckland, New Zealand, and there were people all over the world there. And the one that I loved was this this girl from Scotland. And they give these little mini leads, and she got up there and talked, and she got up and talked about how when she was little, she blew out her birthday candles. And all she ever wished for was that she would be happy, that she could feel happy. And she knew she never, ever would be. But that day, because she was sober, because she had Alcoholics Anonymous, she had happiness. Bob and I were talking. I first came to you, and I didn't come to you. about I didn't know about happiness and serenity. I just couldn't stop drinking. I just didn't want to drink. I didn't know about conferences. I didn't know about laughter. I didn't know that you could have fun and not drink at the same time. All that was icing on the cake for me. I had no expectations of AA, recovery, of sobriety. What a gift that was for me. What it's like now, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. I don't know how I got from being as poor as I was when I first got sober to where I am today. I don't work. Um, I've gone back to school. I've completely changed professions. I'm out of the legal field. Thank you, God. And, um... I'm studying massage therapy. I absolutely love it. And that, too, is a, res- is a result of go- experiencing cancer in this man's death. It created a huge desire in-, in me to be able to comfort and soothe another suffering person. And because you taught me how to go do things and be with people, I was able to do that twenty one years ago I met a man when my second or third child was um born. If my doctor would have been on out of town, this man would have delivered my baby, and I looked at him and he was so handsome and i I felt so much, I said, "God, please keep this man away from me and he did he did for years. I'd see him here and there. I used to work in a Chinese restaurant, and I'd wait on him and his kids. And I could never make eye contact with them. They would never look at me. And I had such a desire to just reach out to somebody because they were so sad. And a few years ago, this man walks into my home group, and I thought, there he is. (laughs) And he was married, and I was going through this stuff with Philip. And uh he got a divorce. Philip died, bless his heart. And uh he's a newcomer. <laughs> and uh he had a did have a few years of sobriety and he wasn't seeing anybody and his sponsor thought it was time for him to date. You know, my not, my sponsor has never said to me, It's time for you to date. <laughs> <laughs> she said, Why don't you leave it alone for a while? But his sponsor, you know, said, maybe you, maybe you should start li- trying to live a normal life. And his sponsor would say, well, what about Pixie? Well, what about Pixie? And what I love about this man is he told his sponsor, she's too vulnerable right now. But God had different plans. Um, he still, we still belong to the same home group. And what ended up happening was we were thrown together at a birthday party for another AA member. And that's it. We've been together ever since. Now, we talk about mood-altering substances in here, and I want you to know that a relationship is a mood-altering substance to me. And I can either have a higher power or I can have a man sometimes. And you know how new relationships go on trends and obsessive and stuff and you're still trying to do the AA deal and you're telling your sponsees how to do their relationships. In the meantime, I'm getting more and more obsessed with this and isolated with this man and my sponsor's gently telling me you're becoming isolated with this man. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I went through a period of time when I wasn't going through enough meetings and all those feelings came back and all those racing thoughts came back. I did not drink. But I had the insanity of the disease of alcoholism one more time. Finally, I get to Polly, and I say, you know, I'm not going to meetings. And she says, you know, just don't get so spiritual. You're of no earthly good. And I heard her, and I went to a meeting. I went to a meeting, and they were talking about the traditions, and there's always two schools of thought on conferences and speakers. And this happened to be the other school of thought. And I left the meeting, and I had a resentment. And I talked about that resentment all the way home. And my partner was so grateful that my focus was off of him, you know, that I was looking over here at this other thing. And the next day came along, and I had such a good time having a resentment the night before. I said, let's go to another meeting. (laughs) And we went to another meeting, and it was a different meeting. And I went to that meeting, and I came out, and I felt good. I felt good about meetings, and I felt good about sobriety and I was grateful to be here one more time you know I've got a few years that's no big deal but I can just be as sick as sick in a heartbeat if I don't come to you and what I know about me is I've never forgot the effect of the first drink I've never forgot that and if I get in enough pain and if I just screw that clamp down hard enough sooner or later My solution as this alcoholic is to take a drink. That's why I keep coming to you over and over and over again. And I come to you because you gave me a life. And I come to you because you gave me laughter. And I come to you because you made me usefully whole. I like to close my talk with a little non-conference of Persian poetry. (laughs) And what it says is, I slept and I dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and I found that life was service. I took action and I found that service was joy. Because of you, strong sponsorship, the grace of a loving God and Alcoholics Anonymous, I have known great joy. Thank you.